Hi, I'm Rick Schwartz. Buenos dias, world. I'm Marco Wendt. Welcome to Amazing Wildlife, where we explore unique stories of wildlife from around the world and uncover fascinating animal facts. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, an international nonprofit conservation organization which oversees the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. Hey, Rick. So I know early on in season one of Amazing Wildlife, there was an episode about koalas. And there was even an interview with one of our conservation partners who helped with koalas impacted by the fires in 2020. Yep, that's correct. I believe that was episode three of season one. The interview you're talking about was with Dr. Kelly Lee. She does amazing work. Oh, no doubt. And as good as this episode is going to (laughs) be, I want to encourage any one of our listeners out there to go check out that episode from season one. And speaking of this episode, we're focusing in on the Australian Forest Conservation Hub. And more specifically, we're looking at one of my favorite tree-dwelling marsupials, the koala. Ooh, sorry, tree kangaroos. Looks like koalas are at the top of the tree for it. Oh, come on. Take it easy now. I said one of my favorite tree-dwelling marsupials. Not the only favorite. Don't make the tree kangaroos mad. (laughs) Yeah, right, man. Nice save. I mean, I don't want you to get any angry kangaroo mail. I know, right? (laughs) Okay, okay, moving on. One thing I do want to establish for everyone before we get too far into this episode is the term koala bear, though used often, is incorrect. And it's incorrect because koalas are not bears, but in fact marsupials. Exactly. And although the koala has a teddy bear-like face, which is probably why people started calling them koala bears, actually, if you look really closely, you can see their features are not at all like those in the bear family. And like you said, koalas are marsupials, and bears are definitely not. Which then, of course, does prompt me to want to make sure all of our amazing wildlife listeners know to koalify as a marsupial doesn't mean you have a pouch. It means you were raised in a pouch. (sighs) Koalify, huh? I come on. I feel like it was appropriate for that moment. (laughs) All right. Okay, anyway, the reason marsupials are raised in a pouch is because they are very underdeveloped when born. So they crawl from the birth canal into the pouch, latch on there until they grow enough to start venturing out of the pouch on their own. Ah, nicely said, my friend. And speaking of koalified, <laughs> nice. Thank you, thank you. I think it's a good time for us to head on over to our researcher to get an update on koala conservation. Right on, let's do it. I am Jen Toby. I am a researcher here at San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I research koalas. That's great. I mean, everyone loves koalas. I hear about it all the time. And it's actually pretty good for our guests to know because every time I'm in the safari park, a guest comes up to me like, Marco, where are the koalas? And I got to remind them they're not here. They're at the San Diego Zoo. Can you speak a little bit about some of these myths, misconceptions about this really unique marsupial we can find in Australia? Actually, historically, Uh they used to be out here at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, too. So those of you who might be as old as me um, (laughs) might remember walking through the areas of the village where we have different animals now, but we actually used to have koalas there, too. So that might be why you're getting questions about it is because historically we did have them out here. It's good to know these things, and especially for our guests, if they have a really specific animal they want to see, you can always check it out on our website, too. So now we know koalas at the San Diego Zoo. Correct. And there is a long history with the zoo and with koalas, right? Can you speak a little bit about that, that unique relationship? 
Absolutely, because that continues today with things. You know, we say that we have the largest breeding colony of koalas outside of Australia, and that actually still is true. Yeah. In fact, I was just in Columbus, Ohio, and saw three of the koalas that are technically considered part of that colony that are housed there. One of which is an offspring. So a Joey that's, I think they said she's about a year old or so. So what our koalas are part of is a bigger kind of consortium, including animals that are over in Europe as well, that are all part of this breeding colony. And we do that so that we can keep the genetics going on that lineage. And historically, we started with koalas back in the 1920s, believe it or not. They were a gift from the children Uh of Sydney to the children of San Diego. From there, more representative of what we have now, more like in the 1980s, which for those of us, that is not 20 years ago. Um, (laughs) So back in the 1980s, the colony of koalas that you see now when you go to the San Diego Zoo, they come from that lineage. So that was where we actively started with our colony and creating that large colony outside of Australia. Which is really important. Like you'd mentioned, it's, you know, for the genetic purposes. And also, I think the side effect that I've seen when I've gone to other zoos is the educational component Mm. that I think being here in San Diego, we sometimes take for granted some of the unique species we get to share our life with. But you go to other zoos where getting a koala is just, you know, it it makes the news and it's, (laughs) it's an important part of really educating people about what's going on in Australia, educating people about koalas. And on that note, I want to go back to Marco's original question that we kind of got sidetracked from, which is one of our favorite things to do in the podcast is talk to people who know these species really well to ask about what are some of the myths or misunderstandings that the general public might have of the species you know so well. So for koalas, what might that be, Jen? If you've had the pleasure of seeing koalas anywhere, it was interesting at Columbus, they showed us where all of this was. So koalas predominantly eat eucalyptus browse. Of course. They're picky. Even though they eat just the eucalyptus, you would think, oh, they'd eat all these varieties. They don't. <laughs> so we have to harvest it. And places that can't grow it, like in San Diego, we have a huge farm that we can farm our browse from, yeah. which is fantastic. And browse being just the fresh cuttings from the plants. Right? Correct, yeah. trees. right, exactly. So basically the leaves that we feed, we still leave attached to a branch of a eucalyptus tree. So in other places, you don't necessarily have access to it because they get snow or otherwise right. and yeah. maybe can't grow what is needed for those animals. So with that, a lot of what I tend to hear is, oh, koalas sleep a lot, which P.S., they sleep 18 to 20 hours a day. Which qualifies. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. So. Yes. I always ask teenagers, so would you like to be a koala? And they, yes. Anyway. So what I hear a lot is that the koalas sleep that much because they're drugged somehow with things. That is not the case, but it is tied into their food. Anyone who's ever looked at any kind of eucalyptus, and they come in many varieties, but those leaves are very tough and they're very thick. That is the predominant way that koalas get their water, believe it or not, from those thick, tough leaves. So if that's what you're eating, 
your sleep and a whole bunch to digest it. Because that's very tough, tough fiber. So you would think about that being their only source and it's not high in calories. So they're not gaining a lot of energy from having to work on digesting that. Right. And you can even liken it to things like carnivores and all where they go out and they gorge themselves and then what do they do? They oh, sleep, yeah. yeah. Thinking like sleep. a lion, right? Sleeping right. 20 hours a day. Exactly. So it's the same kind of idea. It's just with leaves. So it's not necessarily what's in the leaves that is causing them to sleep, but the fact that they have to digest right. those leaves. So they're not high off of the leaves. Right. It's right. just a <laughs> matter processing. of, yeah. correct, yeah. correct. Yeah, I've heard that before. People have asked me that before when giving tours at the zoo. You know, <laughs> Oh, is it true that they get a high off of the eucalyptus? And yeah. Yeah, no. Eucalyptus no. is toxic for a lot of say. other species, but those toxins aren't making them high. It's just the, totally. the heavy, tough, dense fiber. That's yeah. tough correct. to digest. Yeah. Correct. Do they actually have, to get very technical with it, a very large cecum, which is the part of the digestive tract mm-hmm. for the size animal they are. So right. for that mass to move through and for them to be able to digest it, yeah, it takes some time. It takes some yeah. time. And they might as well sleep, right? <laughs> might as well. Right? I mean, hundreds of species of eucalyptus, which makes me really proud to be a San Diegan cruising around the safari park in San Diego Zoo and seeing a lot of these plants were growing on property, which right? is really great. It's a village, wouldn't you say, guys? I mean, it's not oh, just, yeah. right, yeah. the specialists taking care of the koalas on habitat at the zoo, but I love when I'm cruising around and I see all our horticulturists team way up on the treetops collecting all that great browse for those koalas. I right. mean, they, they need, what, fresh browse? They need more than one species every single day, right? Right, yeah. So they spend a lot of time doing that, and then we try not to show them what gets pulled out (laughs) (laughs) from those habitats at the end of the day. Because remember I said koalas are picky about what they eat. So yeah, it's one of the things that I show, especially to students and all, okay, this is what it looks like going in fresh. This is what it looks like coming out. So can you tell which is which? Sometimes you can. You can. Sometimes you You can't though. Usually, but yes. Yeah. They have to nibble on the freshest sprouts and usually on the ends only. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. But such a, a unique adaptation, too. Can you actually speak a little bit? What What is so unique about a koala in that Australian ecosystem? This is one of our conservation hubs as well in Australia, right? So when I think of koala, I'm thinking of one up in a tree. So what is that? What's the behavior around that? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question because then you go, okay, if they sleep all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as I say to people a lot, animals just have to behave to the extent that they can survive. And koalas don't have a bunch of predators. And who knows, maybe that's because they have changed over the years. You know, their closest living relatives are actually ground-dwelling animals. And that would be the wombat, who I know some people, that's their favorite animal. (laughs) Right? I love wombat. Yeah, I'm looking at my husband about that. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't know that, honestly. So that's super unique. Yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah. So it's interesting because one is purely on the ground. Right. You don't see wombats. And underground sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Burrowing underground quite a bit. Absolutely. So, and in fact, if you think it's bad when we have our ground squirrels around here in Southern (laughs) California and the whole they make. Now imagine a wombat. And for those of you who don't know what a cute wombat looks like, (laughs) they're a bit bigger than our ground squirrels and they actually dig out dens. So with the wombats and they are marsupials, so they have a pouch. So their pouch is what we call rear facing. So in other words, if you look at a kangaroo Mm -hmm. or a wallaby or similar, that when they're upright, 
their pouch is upright. Yeah, so you're yeah. seeing the baby's head come out the top. Makes sense. Whereas well. with a wombat, now if you think they have to dig into the ground, so they're, yeah. they're, they're throwing dirt around everywhere. <laughs> if their pouch were facing that same way, they'd be throwing dirt in. <laughs> we wouldn't be seeing wombats no. if that was the case, right? <laughs> so their pouch faces the opposite direction. Ironically, then koalas who are up in trees have the exact same thing. So their pouches do not face upwards like a kangaroo. They actually are rear-facing, similar to what you get in a wombat. So how do the joeys not fall, fall out, out of it? Yeah. <laughs> Something that's up in <laughs> I feel like if my pocket, jelly, right? if my pocket <laughs> was upside down, my phone would fall out. Right? Well, I'm always losing chains, so maybe <laughs> there's something to that, right? I'm just saying. So this is where Mother Nature, as always, steps in with things. So when you look at the biology and how the physiology of those pouches work, they're not open. They're not like our pockets in our pants Uh, or otherwise. I'm thinking like Winnie the Pooh, you know, the kangaroo, you know, (laughs) all her stuff is in that bag or in that pouch. Not like that. Not like that. Right. Well, and you think of it in the same way as like a kangaroo, Uh a mother kangaroo, when that Joey is really small, isn't like, oh, I can't bounce around. Right, I can't right. move totally. anywhere. So because right. bouncing, any of us who have hit a bump in the road or yeah. otherwise knows what flies out of, you know. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your bags in the car or otherwise. Coffee, you know. Right, exactly. So different from that, you actually have parts of the pouches that will tighten up mm-hmm. so that anything in there isn't going to come flying out. Now, Fair it's enough. not a perfect seal. It's not like you're sealing it up. Yeah. Hence the wombat who still will need the rear facing because it's not like Velcro. <laughs> <laughs> not, not as a block. Well, I got a visual. <laughs> so, even though koalas are up in trees, there's two things that are working for them mm-hmm. with that. So, when a joey is born, Mm -hmm. it's like they're all head and mouth and like limbs. Mm -hmm. The great part is when they're rear facing, it's pretty easy for that joey to climb then into that pouch from when they're born, right? Versus a kangaroo has to go up and around and then down into the pouch. So with any of the marsupials, the other thing that happens is that that baby is then going to find mom's nipple and attach to it. And believe it or not, that attachment is pretty good. The other thing is that then the pouch with that attachment, the mom knows like, oh, okay, I have a baby. And so that pouch will tighten up and so that it's also keeping it in there. So, yeah. Got it. That's interesting. And their native range, where we'd say for Australia, where would that be specifically for koalas? So koalas have a really large home range. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I believe they're across most of their historic home range, Mm -hmm. believe it or not. So they go all the way from almost the northern tip which is up in Queensland area, which for those of us who live in North America and all, that's the hotter part because it's closer (laughs) to the equator. equator. But they stretch all the way down into the southern realm as well. So, yeah. So they're across... All sorts of terrains, right? Pretty much the eastern seaboard. Yeah. As long as it's forested with eucalyptus, obviously. Correct. Correct. If you've ever been to Australia, the center of Australia Mm -hmm. is desert. So you're not going to find koalas out in that area. But that's also part of the reason they don't have as many predators is because where they're at, 
you don't have some of those more predatory type animals that you might find on the cusp of those desert right, areas. Yeah, I, don't, I don't really envision like a wedge-tailed eagle like cruising around that forest area trying to pick off right, a koala possibly. Right. But yeah, you're right. And koalas get big enough. So across that range, yeah. they actually differ in size. So they get oh, yeah. bigger as you go southern, which mm. colder. Colder. (laughs) That made me think of something actually, because everyone thinks a koala is cute and cuddly. You know, you sort of grab them, but the way you're describing him now, I mean, they can defend themselves, right? They can move quick if they have to. Right. right? So you have to think, even though they're tree dwelling, and I come from the primate world with things too, where you have primates that will jump from tree to tree. Right. Koalas don't do that unless there is a reason, Mm. i.e. they're scared or something else is going on. So normally koalas will climb down out of trees and then run across the landscape to wherever it is that they want to go up into another space. Mm. Oh, cool. So because they climb up and down, they have really big claws. So because they have to shimmy up, eucalyptus trees and you can absolutely see their claw marks on the trees when you go out for the most part because of the way the bark is on most of the eucalyptus trees they go up and down in fact it's a way in australia that we can track down where koalas have been so yes they've got nice claws the (laughs) other thing remember we talked about the tough eucalyptus leaves so how do you get those well you got to have teeth that actually can take those off of the branches and a powerful jaw to grind it up too correct right so I tell people a lot of times, especially here in North America, if you've ever seen rabbit teeth or like rodent dentinship, it's similar to that in the front because they're biting off of things and then they have to grind it up in their back teeth. So as well equipped as a koala is to defend itself if it has to, we also know they do face a lot of challenges that clawing or biting isn't going to help with environmental issues. And that's part of your work then is researching population sustainability, working with our partners we have in Australia too, to maintain and look at populations for safety issues. Not too long ago, there's the big fires in Blue Mountains and Mm. our partners were part of helping those koalas out as well. I'd love to start diving into some of the conservation side of things and the work you do to help better understand them and what they need. Yeah, absolutely. So we work with two field researchers right now. One is more in that northern area in Queensland. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is in the Blue Mountains area, which is about two and a half hours west. I have to get my east-west right. (laughs) West of Sydney. And the reason I say that is because when you have that big of a home range for a species, there are very different conservation issues you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So up in the Queensland area, because it's the warmer climate, it's nice. They're nice beaches. Those Mm -hmm. of you who might want to go out to the Great Barrier Reef, this is a very tourist-type area. So there's a lot of, I don't want to say conflict, but a lot of overlap between where humans want to be and where koalas want to be. And this has been going on for a very long time. And 
Dr. Bill Ellis, who works there, who I work with, has been doing a lot of work looking at those specific things. So to take a quick example of that area, he currently is looking at releasing koalas in an area that historically you would have found koalas, but because they're ranchers in the area that a lot of their habitat and their interconnective part, Mm -hmm. I know we talk about that with a lot of different animals, is having some kind of connection in the field where they can get from place to place. Yes, yeah. So with the work that he does in that area, what we're specifically looking at is can you release animals back into those areas and have them successfully repatriate it? Um, What's interesting is Dr. Kelly Lee, who's down in New South Wales, looking in the Blue Mountains, is actually looking at that on a natural scale. So the Blue Mountains, prior to the big fires that came through, and we can touch on that a little bit too, that area, people came through and put orchards in. So over the past probably 25 years or so, those orchards, for the most part, the small farms and all have gone away. And the eucalyptus, and those of us who know eucalyptus, it grows (laughs) like a weed, right? So this is a World Heritage Site. People do live in and amongst it. It's also National Park, State Park, and all. So it gets utilized for multiple purposes. But these areas where you're having this natural repatriation of eucalyptus, well, what comes right behind it? So she's starting to see areas where koalas are coming back in. Wow, that's great. The Blue Mountains Mm -hmm. used to be sort of like the epicenter type area of koalas. Okay. Historically, the koalas in that area were part of where people went out to hunt them. When you start hearing about the fur trade, that was out of that area. So there were lots of them back in the day, but now to start seeing that natural repatriation of them coming back in is really actually fascinating. So when you see that and then having the work done up in Queensland as well, where we're looking at, okay, can we do this and put these animals back in and have them be successful? The great news is that it's working. Awesome. That's really great. And koalas, once again, they're picky eaters. That is going to be the main thing that, you know, can this landscape actually sustain it? The really great part for both the work that we do in those two areas is that you really have a lot of buy-in these days from the people who live in those areas. And that's what you need. In the case of where Dr. Ellis is with things, they had a rancher who this is what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And it's not that he's turning the land back into just koala habitat. He actually is continuing to ranch. And what's fascinating is that when you start having these kind of collaborations, you can start seeing, especially on the conservation side, does this work? Right. Can yeah. we do this without saying, oh, you just have to turn the land right. back to one or the other only? Right. right. Exactly. And I know from previous work, not with koalas, that a lot of times when you have trees growing in areas and pasture land, that the pasture land is more productive, it's more viable. It's fantastic to see this sort of symbiosis between the two. Makes sense. It makes sense. I want to jump back real quick too. With all of this work you just touched on, 
and the idea of reintroducing species or them coming in on their own. There's a lot of knowledge, though, that, for example, I know firsthand Dr. Bill Ellis's work on St. Bees and all the studies that have been done on their vocalizations, their communications, everything within that whole concept of knowing and studying what do they need to exist and how do they exist in their space. Now we can take that information and apply it to these ideas of, okay, let's bring koalas into what was you know, a ranch only, but this rancher wants to work with us. I'm assuming Dr. Ellis can leverage what he knows is actually needed to create that solid footprint to reintroduce those koalas. So it's really good. And this really highlights how San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and how our hubs can work with things. So like I said, we've been doing stuff with koalas on ground since the 1980s. The other thing we've been doing since that time is going over to Australia and assisting in these conservation projects. Both Dr. Ellis and Dr. Lee contacted me because of work that I was doing, the research I was doing here with our koalas. Mm, So there's this great connectedness with staff, in particular, some of the things that you were talking about in vocalizations. I was recording vocalizations here of our koalas trying to figure out from our standpoint, okay, we're looking at things like mate choice and how do we keep our colony robust and looking at the genetics. So we're coming at it from sort of our zoo lens. But then what's happening is you have field conservationists and researchers who are like, hey, you have this information. So we started looking at things. And so something that I was looking at in terms of, oh, okay, so how are they communicating here? Or how can that help us with things on grounds that now when you're trying to record the movement patterns of koalas that you might go, oh, maybe I should be looking at vocalizations as well. So there's a lot of that kind of overlap that ends up happening. Um, Dr. Lee contacted me about some scent work. So the male koalas have what we call a sternal or chest scent gland. Uh And for us here, we were curious to be like, okay, you know, it appears to, quote, turn on and produce things. What is it producing? What does that look like? But in comparison to field researchers, for the most part, when I show up every day to collect some of these type of information and data, I know where our koalas are. Right, right. (laughs) I can tell you firsthand, it can take days sometimes, if not hours, to find koalas out in the field oh, with absolutely. things. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So we can help them with speeding up some of these processes, and then they take that information and can really go with it. Right. And in the case of some of these types of things that we're looking at, like the release of koalas into areas, mm-hmm. that is all made possible by some of the previous work that Bill was doing, which then also tied into our animals here right. at the San Diego Zoo. Yeah, so the San so. Diego Zoo koalas were basically creating a baseline of information, which is, if anybody doesn't know, when we're talking about science, having that baseline, having that basic, like, okay, this is our level, and then we can go out and explore from there is so very important. What a foundation you help create with your research for Bill, Dr. Ellis to apply then in what he's doing. And now we can look back even and see how all of that's tying together to these koalas being reintroduced to old habitat that's been ranches for years. And then, like you said, it's that tie-in with the local community, those that are living there in these spaces to really allow all that data and information that you've been a part of for so long 
to come to fruition now to have koalas going back out there. That's so cool. Right. I it's love very it. cool because there's a lot of times where people come and they see, say, our different animals and, you know, how does that tie in with stuff? Yeah. And it's not just koalas, you know, there's a lot of different species that we work with here and why we do the research. And it's always great from our end to see it come full circle, that it really enhances the work that's being done out in the field as well. Yeah. It really is awesome to hear how the collaborative work at the zoo and our partners, you know, I mean, we're the Wildlife Alliance, right? And it's just great to hear the stories of how it's all coming together, not just the current work, but the history as well. I can't thank you enough, Jen, for your time today. I really appreciate you being on Amazing Wildlife and sharing all your passion and knowledge with everybody. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me to talk about the cute, fuzzy koalas that we have. <laughs> the tree, <laughs> tree dwelling wombats. Uh, I love them even more now. <laughs> uh, such a great conversation about koalas with Jen. And I really appreciate how Jen explained the challenges and success they're having with reintroducing koalas back into those lands that they once inhabited. I mean, I wonder what that's like for those people, right? You wake up one morning and then all of a sudden you hear a koala sound like like a koala <laughs> bellow. Koala bellow. Yeah. Can you imagine that? I, just for our listeners, that, that was Marco trying to do a koala bellow. <laughs> Hopefully our, our sound engineer can give us a proper bellow. But you're right. It is a very unique and odd sound. And if they have not been in that area for a while, I can only imagine what the people in that area must think right. when they hear that for the first time. And with that said, the fact that it's the ranchers asking to have the koalas come back to the land that they ranch is so great. It gives me hope for other species that have been displaced. Maybe we'll start seeing others work with conservationists to bring species back to areas that they were once found in before the land was developed for human use. Right? I mean, it's awesome. I love how much Jen's work and research of the koalas at the San Diego Zoo ended up being so important and helpful to those doing koala conservation back in Australia. Another great example of the impact of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and how working together allows us all to do such great things. It really is a great example, right? Just makes my heart smile. <laughs> and we are always welcoming other allies for wildlife. Anyone can join us and support our conservation efforts. I encourage anyone interested in joining us to go to our website, sdzwa.org, to learn more about our conservation hubs and how to get involved. You know, speaking of conservation hubs, mm -hmm. there is one hub we have yet to dive into this season. Hmm, why do I feel like I'm walking into something right now? <laughs> you know me so well, Marco. <laughs> and yes, I think it's time for us to dive into the Oceans Hub. Uh. <laughs> was, that a, was that a bella? What was that? Be sure to subscribe and tune into our next episode in which Marco and I find out more about the bears that are considered marine mammals. The polar bear. I'm Marco Went, And I'm Rick Schwartz. Thanks for listening. For more information about the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park, go to sdzwa.org. Amazing Wildlife is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios. Our supervising producer is Nakia Swinton, and our sound designer and editor is Sierra Spreen. For more shows from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 